Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So, good evening and Chag uh, Sameach, Modim Lesimcha, because it is Hoshana Rava, as we are meeting together to learn Torah, which is very appropriate this night. I suppose it's appropriate at all times as well. And we are continuing the story of Yaakov and his marriage situation. And the story so far is he has offered to work for seven years in order to marry Rachel. And we read in Perak Kaftet Pasuk Kafbet, Vayasof Lavan et Kol Anshe Hamakom, Vayas Mishte. Lavan gathered all the people of the place and made a feast. And the relevance of all the people will become clearer a little bit later. No Rashi on that. And it was in the evening. He took Leah, his daughter, and he brought her to him. And he, Yaakov, went in unto her. Uh, which means what it sounds like. And Lavan gave to her, to Leah, Zilpa, his maidservant, Le Leah, to Leah, Bito, his daughter, Shivcha, as a maidservant. So much later on, we'll see that there was perhaps a, a part of the trickery in giving Zilpa in particular rather than Bilha. But right now, that's not our concern. Yaakov, sorry, Lavan is um, acknowledging Leah's new status as a married woman, so she gets a maidservant called Zilpa, who, as we know, will come into the story later. And then, there's still no Rashi on that, and then we get to Basak Kafhei, on which there is Rashi. Vaihi Babokia, Vihinehi Leah. And it was in the morning, and behold, she was Leah. Uh, so this is the deception that has now been revealed. So even though Yaakov worked for Rachel and thought he was marrying Rachel, it was Leah whom Yaakov, uh, Lavan took to him, and it was Leah with whom he spent the night. And in the morning, it, she was Leah. Vayome Lavan, and he said to Lavan, Mazot asita li, what is this that you have done to me? Hello, Barachel avadti imach, surely for Rachel I worked with you. Velama remitani, and why have you tricked me? So what does Rashi say? So this is the source of a very, very famous Midrashic comment about Rachel and Leah. And Rashi says the following, So on the words, it was in the morning, and behold, she was Leah. But at night, she was not Leah. So Rashi is expounding on these words. It was in the morning, and behold, she was Leah. And that tells you in the night, in a certain sense, she wasn't Leah. Now, what is Rashi analyzing? And then he's going to explain why she wasn't Leah at night. So we'll come to that in a moment. But what is Rashi focusing on? Well, there's uh, possibly something that is there and possibly something that isn't there. What is there is the word hine. Hine, behold, which uh, occurs in, in the Tanakh very often, and it's not a word we use very much in English, so we have to think about what it means. So one of the things that it implies is there's something new, something remarkable. So the hine hilea only is, uh, only is uh, come to be in the morning. 
Hence Rashi says, because Hinei he Leah in the morning, so at night she wasn't Leah. Up till that time in the morning, she was in some way not Leah, and only in the morning, Hinei he Leah. There's something else, though, that is not there. And in, in examples of this sort, what often comes after the word Hinei is the word Bayar, and he saw. So we would expect, by comparison with this phrase, with many other phrases, the Hinei, the Yar, he Leah. Behold, he saw, she was Leah. And the absence of Bayar, according to some, is telling us that there was something more profound. It wasn't just he hadn't noticed, but there was a profound change into Leah from something else. Bayar implies that there's something going on but he hadn't paid close enough attention, and now he pays attention, he sees she's Leah. That's not what's happening here. Hinehi Leah, so with the Hine, without the Yar, maybe one or the other will be sufficient, or maybe it's the combination of the two, implies there was a transformation. She was Leah now, but previously she had not been Leah. Hence Rashi's comment, Aval Balayla Lo Haita Leah. Now, I have to say, I always used to read that as like um, sarcastic as if to say, in the night, wasn't she Leia? No, and I don't think that's correct. Rashi is saying, based on the way I've explained it, I hope, that there was a transformation. In the night, she was someone else, and now she was Leia. So now Rashi's going to explain how she was someone else. Lefi, Yaakov simanim Because, and this is the story we know well, Yaakov transferred simanim, some signs, to Rachel, um, and although Rashi doesn't spell it out, that was in order to um, overcome the trickery of Lavan. So because Yaakov suspected that Lavan was going to try and swap Rachel for someone else, so he gave Simanim to Rachel that only she would know, and therefore he could test that the, the woman he was with was really Rachel. But then what happened, says Rashi, Rachel lo When Rachel saw but they were bringing Leah into him. In other words, Leah was coming to the chuppah. Omra, she said, Achshav tikaleim achoti. Now my sister will be embarrassed, or worse than embarrassed, will be ashamed. If, if Rachel, uh, sorry, if, if uh, Yaakov realizes it's Leah, because Leah doesn't know the secret signs that Rachel does, and Yaakov will say, I'm not marrying this woman, it's the wrong woman then Leah will be very, very embarrassed. And Rachel senses this. So what happened? Amda umasra lo la, sorry, otan simanim. She arose and she handed over to her, Rachel handed to Leah, those simanim, those signs. She gave her the secret. And now we can understand that during the night when Yaakov wondered whom he was with, he tested and ya Rachel, sorry, Leah gave the right simanim as if she was Rachel, and therefore it was only in the morning when he realized that it wasn't Rachel after all. So in the night, not just that Leah stood in for Rachel, but in a sense Leah was Rachel. As we said at the beginning, right to what the Rashi's comment, Aval Balayla lo haita Leah, in the night she wasn't Leah. And there's an interesting halakhic sort of um, idea here that there are certain times when simanim, create a halakhic reality. I mean, the most obvious case is if you uh, find a lost object and you should give it over, you should return it to the owner, but how do you know who the owner is? So as, as we're familiar with the laws of Hashavata Veda of returning lost objects, the 
the, the, the supposed owner has to identify simanim, ident ways of identifying the lost object, which only the owner would know. And if the owner does that, then he or she is determined to be the owner. And therefore the finder correctly hands over to the person who has identified the simanim. Now, it's a little bit more of an abstract case, and probably a hypothetical case, but the Gomorrah talks about a situation where a man's in bed with either his wife or his wife's sister, one of whom is permitted to him, one of whom is forbidden to him. How should he act? So if there are simanim, if there are signs that it's his wife, then he is able to proceed and have relations with that woman on the basis of the simanim. So what the simanim do is they actually create a halachic reality. And that's what Rashi, I think, means by saying in the night she wasn't Leah because she had the simanim, the signs that identified her as Rachel. And therefore Yaakov, by, by the way, this is precisely the situation. Um, the example I gave from the Gemara is precisely the situation Yaakov was in. He thought he'd got married to Rachel. To, to Rachel. Leah, therefore, was his wife's sister who was forbidden to him. Um, and by the way, you could actually argue that he had got married to Rachel and he, the, the Kedushim, the value which he'd given to Lavan in order to marry Rachel was the seven years' work. So you can actually argue that he was actually married to Rachel, and therefore Leah was completely forbidden to him, being his wife's sister. But because she gave the Simanim, um, he was entitled to proceed, um, assuming she was Rachel. Just by the way, one more little interesting thing um, that I saw in the name of the Riva who is an early Rishon, or just like one generation later than Rashi, I think. Um, uh, when we talk about the Simanim, I don't know about you, but I always imagine it was like secret hand signals. You do this, and Rachel does that, and, and that's how they um, got the message who it was. The Gemara, actually, the Gemara in um, Bavar Basra, I think, um, is the source of this story about the Simanim. And it says the Simanim were things that they said that there was words that Rachel was going to say and that Leah actually said on her behalf. Uh, so it wasn't hand signals, it was words. The re so that's what the Gemara says. The Riva says, what were the words? That Yaakov taught Rachel the three mitzvot which are particularly appropriate to women. Of course, every mitzvah, with, with a small number of exceptions, are appropriate to women, but there are three which women particularly take charge of. Hadlakot Aner and... Uh, um, um, which is somewhat anachronistic because it was invented by the rabbis probably later than Yaakov, um, and uh, Nida and Chala, and those are the three things he explained to Rachel, who probably didn't know that in advance, and Leah certainly didn't, and says the Riva, those were the signs. Okay, that concludes that Pasuk. So we will move on to the next one. So Yaakov has said to Lavan, what's going on? Why did you trick me? I worked for Rachel. Says in Pasuk Kavva, Vayama Lavan, Lo Ye Aser Kain Bimkomenu. It is not done so in our place. Latate Hatseira Lifne Habachira. To give the younger before the older. Now, two things to note. There's no rush in this. So, one thing that is going to be relevant, though, is that Lavan, in his tricky way, is saying, It's not my fault, it's the communal expectations. Uh, you can call me a trickster, but really what I'm doing is what society expects of me, which is often the defense of a trickster. Uh, the other thing to say, um, and this is not made by Rashi, but I'll just make it because it's almost so obvious it jumps out. Um, it is not hard to imagine that Yaakov, sorry, that Lavan is having a dig at Yaakov, who took the Bechorah 
from his elder brother, implying that it may be where you come from, the elder is supplanted by the younger, but where we come from, in our place, we preserve the order, and it's not done to marry off the younger sister before we've married off the older sister. Again, Lavan, as typical, does not take responsibility for what he's done. He finds an excuse. So, no Rashi on there. Pasuk Kaf Zayin. Malay Shavua Zot. Um, I'll leave that untranslated. It's something to do with seven. Venitna Lacha. I'll leave that untranslated as well. Uh, or Gam Et Zot. So, well, something to do with giving to you. Also, this one. Also, her, actually. So, fulfill something about this one, i.e. Leah, and then something about given to you will be gam et zot, the other one, with the work that you will work with me for another seven years. So, sorry to miss out the uh, crucial bits, but I want Rashi to tell us what they mean. Something to do with, okay, you're married to Leah, stick with that, and then you can have Rachel in return for another seven years' work. So what does Rashi say? So Rashi is particularly bothered by the grammar of the word Shavu'ah Zot. Malay Shavu'ah Zot, fill something. Says Rashi, Davuk Hu. It is literally stuck. In other words, grammatically, it is a construct. The word Shavu'ah is in the construct form, which means it means the weak, and, and Rashi will say it means a weak, and we'll talk about what else it could have meant in a moment. The week of this one. The week of this one. Now, what Rashi means is, the word Shavuazot means the week of this one, i.e. Leah. It does not mean this week. So you might read it clumsily, if you didn't know your grammar, as fulfill this week, which means something quite different. We'll explain that in a moment. But since the word Shavuah is construct, smichut, or Davuk, as Rashi calls it, it means week of. Week of what? Week of Zot, week of this one. So that's what Shavua Zot means, the week of this one. Now Rashi explains the grammar. Shaharei nakud b'chataf, because the vowel under the first syllable is a chataf. Well, no, it's not, it's a shava. But Rashi, in his uh, parlance, calls what we call a shava, he calls a chataf. So the syllable under the, the, the now, sorry, the, the vowel under the shin is a, what we call shavah, he calls a chataf. And it means shavua shel zot, the week of this one. Now, by the way, if you've got vowels in the Rashi that you're following, when he now spells out the word shavua, not in the construct state, but he puts in the word shell, meaning of, as if the word shavua is a, uh, uh, not construct, absolute noun, it's got a, Patach, uh, sorry, it's got a kamatz under the shin. Because if it's got a kamatz under the shin, it's not in the construct state. It doesn't mean weak off, it just means weak. So now he spells out shavua shell zot with the word shell, um, meaning that the word shavua doesn't have to be construct. I hope you're getting this. If not, don't worry too much. But if the word shavua was not in the construct state, as you can see here, it's got a kamatz under the shin. Whereas in our text, it's got a shava under the shin, which makes it construct, meaning the week of. Okay, continues Rashi. So what is meant by shavua shalzot? Vahein shivat yemei ha-mishter. It's the seven days of the mishter, seven days of the feast. It's the week of sheva brachas. What is fascinating is how many references to 
um, marriage rights, R-I-T-E-S, come from the story of Lavan. We've already seen, much earlier, that the bracha that is given to every color um, in the bedecking room was given by Lavan and his mother to Rivka before she set off. Uh, may you mean the mothers of thousands and tens of thousands. That's one example. There's more to come. And the next example is this one here, where it, this is the origin of the idea of Sheva Brachot. And the Gemari Roshalmi says, we learn the Indian of a week of Sheva Brachot from this quote. And it's Lavan, Lavan who, by the way, is our ancestor, because the Imahot, Rachel and Leah, were his children. Possibly Zilpah and Bilhah were his children as well. So we're all descended from Lavan. So there are things that we learn from Lavan, a lot about what not to do, but occasionally we learn what to do, and a week of Sheva Rachet is one of them. So, sorry, I said Talmud Yerushalmi, this is where I get it from, because Rashi says, but Talmud Yerushalmi And then we have in brackets, because it may or may not be authentic Rashi, the following. It's impossible to say that it means a Shavua, um, a week, um, and meaning this week, so what I've said is that Rashi is rejecting the translation of fulfill this week. It can't mean this week. It would need to have a patach under the shin. Um, I think that's what we call a kamatz, but never mind. The old, and furthermore, If you thought shavua zot meant this week, and the word zot was the description of shavua, that won't work. Because Shavua is a masculine noun, and it would have to be Shavua Ze, not Shavua Zot. How do I know it's a masculine noun? Kedichtiv Shiva Shavuot Tispa Lach. Because by the Svirata Omer, it says seven weeks you shall count. Now, Shavuot looks like a feminine ending, but Shiva, with the hay is the masculine form of Shiva, of seven. So we can see, since it takes the masculine form of Sheva 7, that Shavuah is a masculine noun. And therefore it can't be Shavuah Zot, meaning this week, it would have to be Shavuah Zeh. Lefikha ein mashma Shavuah ela Shiva. Therefore it doesn't mean a week, as in fill this week, uh, which would imply, depending on where you're up to in the week, if you got married on Tuesday, fill this, fulfill this week means the next three days, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Shabbos, four days. If you got married on a Monday, it would mean carry on for the next five days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It doesn't mean finish off the week, Ela Shiva, but it means seven days. So it's a period of seven days. And then he quotes in French, Stina, which I think means a period of seven days. Okay, let's just take away that. I probably, I, I, I hope I haven't made it too complicated. Grammatical point, Shavua Zot cannot mean this week. It can't mean this week because it needs a kamatz under the shin, and it can't mean this week because it would be zer rather than zot because shavua is masculine. That's the grammar. The implication is that you might think it means fill, fulfill this week, which means however many days left in the week you should wait before you marry somebody else, but it doesn't mean that. It's shavua zot means the dedicated week, or rather the period of seven days that starts from the wedding and goes on for seven more days. And furthermore, what are these seven days? These are the seven days of Sheva Brachot. And this in Yerushalmi is the source of the whole matter of a week of Sheva Brachot. There are some who want to say 
that what Rashi is refuting is the word Shavuah can also mean seven as in seven years. Um, the Gemara often talks about a period of time and uses the word Shavuah for seven days of the week, but it also uses the same word Shavuah for a Shemitah cycle, seven years. Now, um, uh, Lavan has said you have to work for Rachel for another seven years. So you could mistakenly read the Pasuk as saying, fell seven years before you marry Rachel, but that's not what it means, uh, as we will see clearly from what happens next in the story. Okay, after saying Malay Shivuazot, Rashi, sorry, Lavan says, Venitna Lacha. And Rashi now comments on Venitna Lacha, also a grammatical point with an implication. Says Rashi, Loshon Rabim. This is a plural. What does he mean this is a plural? Because the word nitna could be read in two grammatical forms. It could be read as a feminine third person nifal, she will be given. It would be past and the verb will put it into the future. You could read it as she will be given. Or you can read it as a kal, first person plural future. The nitna, we will give. And Rashi says it's Loshan Rabim, it's plural, i.e. it's the second, not the first. It means we will give. It does not mean she will be given, which, by the way, is how the Ibn Ezra reads it. But Rashi spells out, no, it does not mean that. It means she will, uh, we will give. And then Rashi brings some parallel examples. Kamo Nerda, the Navla, the Nisrafa, in Bereshit Perigid Aleph. Nerda and Navla... Uh, so it, the story that Rashi's uh, just, just quoting from is the story of Migdal Bava, of the people building the uh, Tower of Bava. And the people say, Nisrafa, we will um, make bricks by burning. Hashem says, Nerda, we, he's using the royal we, or he's referring to himself and his Bet Din, we will descend. And then Vanavla, and we will um, uh, confuse their languages. And each one of those is a plural. The nun at the front does not make it passive, nifal. It makes it plural, we will. But those three words are chosen for another reason as well. Because there's something also that those three words that Rashi brings as examples has in common with our word, venitna. And that is the hay on the end. Now, if you look at Bereshit Perik Yodal of Pasuk Zion on the word venavla, Says Rashi, Nun Meshamesh Beloshon Rabim, the Nun makes it plural, the Hey Achrona Yetera, and the Hey on the end is superfluous. So Rashi is saying, when you look at the words Nerda and Navla and Nisrafa, they're just we will, and the Hey really serves no purpose. And that's exactly the same as our word here, the Nitna means we will give, and the hey is not to be read. It, it doesn't make any difference to the meaning. Uh, and Rashi concludes, af zer loshan vinitain. This word is also an expression of vinitain, and what's he done there? What's he, he's rewritten the word vinitna, but without the hey on the end. So Rashi has not spelt out in this case, 
but the hay is superfluous. But by quoting the words from Bereshit Yud Aleph and understanding what they mean, and you can even look at the Rashi there on Yud Aleph Zion, where Rashi says explicitly, the hay at the end means nothing. So, the nitna we will give. Okay, why does Laban use the plural? He's the one in charge. He's marrying off his daughter. Um, so maybe he's using the royal we. He's sort of uh, speaking in a very pompous tone uh, and uh, trying to establish his authority. Or maybe we can look at the message of the Ramban. And the Ramban here, if you happen to have it in front of you, I'll read it because it's, it's worth reading. So the Ramban commenting on Rashi's comment and asking why does Lavan use the plural as Rashi says he does. The Ramban says as follows. It seems in my eyes that the words of Lavan were part of the trickery. He said to Yaakov, He really said um, that this is not done in our place. When Lavan says it's not done in our place, as he said in Pasuk Kaf Vav, says the Ramban, what he means is, the people here won't let me, La Asot came to do so. Kinavalahu etzlam, because it's disreputable by them, as far as they're concerned, as far as the people here are concerned. Aval, but, says Lavan to uh, Yaakov, as the Ramban says, explaining the Pasuk, Timaleshavuazot, finish this week, sorry, so fulfill the week of this one, not finish this week, Venatan lacha ani, and we will give to you. Who's we? Ani v'chol anshei hamakom. I and all the people of the place. Gam etzot. We'll also give you the other one. Ai v'chel. Shekulonu naskim b'davar. Because we will all agree with the thing. V'naaseh lacha kavod u'mishteka asher asino b'roshona. And we will do for you an honor and a feast like we did for the first time. Says the Ramban. He's spelling out what Rashi is hinting at. That Lavan is saying, it's not my fault. I'd love to do the right thing, but I'm forced by the people around me. They won't let me. And this is really profound. First of all, it explains the plural of Venitna, as explained by Rashi, we will give. Secondly, it also explains why back in Pasuk Kafbet, why did Lavan gather all the people? Because he wants to hide behind the people when he does such a dastardly thing. And the third reason I think it's so uh, powerful, this Ramban, is because it's the excuse that we all use when we do something wrong. How many times do we say, of course I'd like to do the right thing, but there's too much pressure around me. They won't let me. And Lavan, as explained by the Ramban, as explained, who is explaining Rashi's grammatical comment, is saying the source for this idea of, I'd love to do the right thing, but they won't let me, this is Lavan. And this is why he uses the plural tense, the plural form. Okay. What else does uh, Lavan say in this verse? We will give gam et zot. Also this one, which is not a nice way of referring to Rachel. So, complete the week of this one, or fill the week of this one, have a week of Sheva Brachas with Leah, and then we will give you Gam Etzot, this one, i.e. Rachel, says Rashi, Miyad, immediately. 
לאחר שבעת ימי המשתה. After the seven days of feasting, after the Sheva Brachas of Leah, ותעבוד לאחר נישואיה. And you will work, i.e. the seven years for Rachel, after the marriage. Now what is Rashi saying? Rashi is spelling out the chronology. And the key word is miyad, immediately. You'll get Rachel immediately, um, and then you'll do the seven years work after that. Now, why do you have to? Why does Rashi have to say that? Because you might misunderstand the chronology in the verse of Kaf Zayin that we're just we're, we're reading. Because you might read it as Lavan says to Yaakov, "Male shivuazot, fill uh, the week of this one." We will give you this one because of the work that you'll do for another seven years. So you could read it as Rachel will only be given after seven more years. And Rashi tells you that's not the case. And Rashi emphasizes that he won't have to wait seven years for Rachel. He will have to marry Rachel now, or at least after a week and then do the work later. Why does Rashi say that? Because it's very clear from the continuation of the narrative, in particularly Pasuk Lamud, which we're going to get to very soon, but that's how it was. If you thought that he would marry Rachel only after seven more years, then Pasuk Lamud, and in fact the rest of the story, doesn't make sense. So Rashi puts you straight and says in Pasuk um, Kafzayin, Lavan means you marry Rachel miyad immediately and then you work for seven years. So that takes us to Pasuk Kafchet. Vayas Yaakov Cain. Yaakov did so. Vayamalei Shavuazot. And he filled the week of this one, as we've explained. Vayatein lo et Rachel bito lo leisha. And he, Lavan, gave him, Yaakov, Rachel, his daughter, as a wife. And just like he gave a maidservant to Leah, we read in Pasuk Kaftet, V'yatein lavan l'rachel bito et bilha shivchato la l'shivcha. And lavan gave to Rachel his daughter Bilha, his maidservant, to her, to Rachel, as a maidservant. Pasuk Lamad, V'yavo gam el Rachel, he came to Rachel, V'yehav gam et Rachel mi Leah, and he loved also Rachel than Leah, which is the classical Hebrew way of saying more than Leah, which we will come to later. And he worked with him seven more years, or another seven years. Um, and that's what I was talking about when Rashi had to explain the chronology of Pasuk Kav Zion, that the marriage to Rachel came before the seven years, and that's clearly spelt out in Pasuk Lamad that the marriage is preceding the seven years of work. But Rashi's got something to say about the words Old Sheva Shanim Acherot, seven more years afterwards or others. And in fact, part of the problem here is the um, uh, problem of translating both the word Old and Acherot. So Old means Old Sheva Shanim, seven more years, and Acherot means seven more years, other ones, um, which doesn't really translate easily into English. And it is probably that problem that Rashi is picking up and responding to. So Rashi says, Od Sheva Shanim Acherot, Acherot Hikishan Lerishonot. 
the word Achirot is to connect it to the first lot, the first seven years. So sometimes the Torah makes what's called a hekesh, a connection between this and this. If two things are in the same verse or are somehow connected to each other by some linguistic, stylistic uh, technique, then there's a hekesh, then we can make a connection from one to the other. This is usually done in halachi terms. The halacha of one thing also applies to the other thing. But here Rashi is making a hekesh in a different sense to say, Ma rishonot be'emunah, af ha'acheronot be'emunah. Just as the first lot, the first seven years, were faithful, or in other words, love and, sorry, Yaakov did his job properly. Um, we know he did his job properly for the first seven years because he hadn't been tricked. There was no reason for him not to act as a faithful servant in the first seven years. Af ha'achronot be'emunah. Similarly, the hekesh, the connection, tells you that the other years, the second lot of seven, were also done in faithfulness. Even though they came on him through trickery, even though he only had to do the second seven years because he was tricked, and that was a bad thing, and you might expect him to be resentful at best and not do his job properly at worst, but he didn't. He had the same emunah as he did for the first seven years. So we learn the integrity of Yaakov. Uh, it makes sense because when Yaakov finally has his showdown with Lavan, he says, I worked for you very, very well. We'll come back to that uh, much later. Um, <clears throat> so Rashi is pointing out that even in the second seven years, when he had every right to feel cheated, he still worked be'emunah. Now, what is, what's going on here? What's the hekesh? What's the connection? Well, really, there's, there's two ways of looking at it, depending on how you understand the word achronot. Because the word achronot could be understood as it's other but similar. You have seven years, and then you have seven years achronot, sorry, achirot, which are like the first, but not like the first. Um, they're not exactly the same as the first, but they're like the first. So you could understand the word acher, meaning equivalent, or sorry, different but equivalent. And that would lead you to Rashi's conclusion that um, the second lot were in Pe'emunah, just like the first seven years. Or you can read the word acherot as meaning different, that there is one thing and then there is acher, which means a different thing. And sometimes we use the word acher, acherot, to imply a distinction. In which case, where does Rashi get his idea from? What's the source of the Hekesh? In which case, the Hekesh is odd. Um, and as I said at the beginning, the, the, the problem, both the, the, either you can say the problem that Rashi is addressing or the problem that we have in understanding Rashi is you have these two words. You have the word odd and you have the word achirot. And they're really both doing the same sort of thing. Or maybe you could say they're not doing the same thing. Achirot implies different, in which case odd is out of place here because old implies a connection. It's seven years and seven more years. Like that means more of the same. So if you say achirot implies something different, then what is old doing? Old is linking them together to say, even though they were different, and what's the difference? The first one was pre-trickery and the second one was post-trickery. Nevertheless, they had a hekesh, they had a similarity. And the similarity was the emunah, the faithfulness with which Yaakov worked.
Let's move on. Pasuk Lamed Aleph. Vayar Hashem ki snoa lea, vayiftach et rachma, v'rachel akara. Hashem saw that Leah was hated. I will come back to that word in a moment. And he opened her womb. In other words, he made her fertile. Rachel Akara. And Rachel was barren. She was not fertile. This is the beginning uh, of the story of the birth of Yaakov's children. And on one level, and this isn't really Rashi, and Rashi doesn't go in for the emotional stuff, but I will mention that it's a tragic, tragic story. Rachel is the wife who is more loved, but without the children. Leah is the wife who is less loved, but with the children. And whether the rivalry between Rachel and Leah was on a friendly basis, or whether it was on a more less friendly basis, depending on the Mephoshim, it was certainly, there was a rivalry, and there was a tragedy. And it was all, by the way, engineered by Lavan himself, who created this situation. I think it's very important to stress that we translate snu'ah in this verse as hated. It does not mean hated. It cannot mean hated. It cannot mean that Yaakov Avinu would hate anyone, least of all his wife, and who was a totally innocent party in this. What it does mean is she is less loved. So it's relative hate. I don't think even the word hate is the right English translation. She was loved less. So that we do know, and that is reasonable to say that Rachel was the one whom Yaakov met at the well. Rachel is the one who, when he met her, he rolled the stone. That's the effect of her appearance. Rachel is the one whom he particularly wanted to marry. And so it's understandable that he loved Rachel more. So Hashem brings about a situation where even though Rachel has not got the same love of her husband, she's got something else. She's got children. So Pasuk Lamad Aleph introduces for the, what's coming next the end of this chapter and basically all of the next chapter about the children that Rachel, that Leah and other wives bore. So first of all, Pasuk Lamad Bet, let's have the first son. The Tahar Leah, Leah conceived, the Tailed Ben, and she bore a son, the Tikrashemo Ruven, and she called his name Ruven, Ki Amra, because she said, Ki Ra'a Hashem Ba'anyi, Hashem has seen my affliction, ki ata ye'ahavani ishi, because now my husband will love me. And by the way, again, this isn't Rashi, but you can hear the cri de coeur, you can hear her heart cry out, I'm not loved, but now I've produced a son, now my husband will love me. Okay, now as we might know, that for each of the sons, um, there is a little story behind the name. And in each case, we're explained why they were given that name. Um, what is interesting in this case, I'll mention, is that it says for Tikrashmo Ruven, she called his name Ruven, and then it gives a reason why. And in, I think, all the other cases, it's the other way round. We have the story before, and therefore she called his name, or and he called it, and she called his name so and so. Here, the name is called first, and then the reason is given. So let's see again what the reason is. She calls him Reuven, ki amra ki ra'a Hashem, because Hashem has seen. So ra'a is, the, is there in Reish Aleph. Well, it's not a vav, it's a, so it's not a hey, it's a, it's a vav. But the Reish Aleph bit relates to the ra'a, that Hashem has seen my affliction. 
Ki ata yehavani ishi. And now my husband will love me because Hashem has given me this child. Let's look at Rashi. Um, there's a, this, this, this is a Rashi which is going to be hard to explain. Uh, I've got five possible explanations of it. Um, uh, there's one thing you have to take on trust. That in order to understand this Rashi and more to come, that the Imahot had Ruach HaKodesh. In fact, later on, well, very soon, but not in this Pasuk, Rashi makes the point that the Imahot were prophetesses, prophets, I think we should say, Nevi'ot. Um, so even before Rashi says that, you have to assume that they had tremendous Ruach HaKodesh. She knew a lot about what's going to happen in the future. So, Vatikrashimo Ruven, she called his name Ruven. Rabotenu Pershu, our rabbis expounded, so this comes from a Midrash. Amra, she said, Ra'u ma bain bani leven chami. Ra'u, see, ma, what is bain, distinguishing between bani, my son, so Ra'u ven is see the son, and compare him, leven chami, to the son of my father-in-law. Now, who's the son of my father-in-law? It's not Yitzchak. Sorry, it's not Yaakov, her husband. It's Esau. Esau is the son of her father-in-law. So compare my son, Ruven, Ruven, see the son, to the son of my father-in-law, i.e. Esau. Shemachar habachora liyakov, that he sold the birthright to Yaakov. Vizer, but this one, i.e. Ruven, Lo machara Yosef. He didn't sell it to Yosef. Velo irer alav, but didn't complain about it. What does she mean? That Reuven is the firstborn, so he deserves the birthright. But the birthright was taken from Reuven and given to Yosef. Now, in what way did Yosef get the birthright? In Pasha's Vayechi, Yaakov sounds like he's giving the birthright to Yosef. And in particular, Yosef gets two tribes, so he gets two shares in Eretz Israel. So let's assume that means Yosef gets the birthright. So Esau sold the birthright, but then complained that he didn't have it anymore. Reuven is the exact opposite. Reuven didn't sell the birthright, so he's got every reason to claim that he still has it, and yet didn't complain when it was taken away. Velo'od. And not only that, not only did he not complain when the birthright was taken from him and given to Yosef, even though he hadn't sold it. Not only did he not complain about Yosef having the birthright, but he tried to bring Yosef out from the pit. So, I told you that we have to assume that Leah's got tremendous Ruach HaKodesh. She knows the whole story of Chomish Baratius. And she knows what's going to happen. And she knows that Reuven, her son, is going to be have no complaint about losing the birthright and it being given to Yosef. And Reuven even tries to rescue Yosef when he's thrown into a pit. Okay. Now, what's the obvious question about this, Rashi? The obvious question is, why do we need an explanation in the Midrash as to what, what, what inspired Leah to call her son Reuven when we've got it in the Pasuk? The Pasuk says, Ki amra, ki ra'ah Hashem ba'ani. Hashem has seen, ra'ah, Ruven, ra'ah, my um, affliction. And that's why I call him Ruven. 
So Rashi brings this whole story about compare my son to the son of uh, Yitzchak, i.e. Esau, and look how good my son is. So why do we need this Rashi? So I said I've got, I think, five answers. So the first one is, um, and I hinted at this as I was going through it, in the Pasuk, it doesn't explain why he's Reuven. In the Pasuk, he really should be called Ra'ah, not Ra'u, and not Reuven. The only word that's connected to Reuven in the Pasuk is the word Ra'ah, but it doesn't have the plural, Ra'u, and it doesn't have the Ben bit. So maybe, Rashi says, that the Pasuk doesn't answer the question why he's called Reuven. So we need a whole story of Ra'u, see, in the plural, everyone should see, and Ben about my son. Next thing is, as I mentioned this, there's something odd about the story of why Reuven is named Reuven in the Pasuk. In odd as in exceptional. As in, the Tikra Shemur Reuven comes before Ki Amra Ki Ra'ah Hashem Ba'anyi. She called his name Reuven before it says, because she said Hashem has seen my affliction. Suggesting perhaps that there's a, pre, a, a, a prior reason why she calls him Reuven. That comes first, which Rashi spells out. And then there's a secondary thing, which comes second. After she's called him Reuven, then she says, Hashem has seen my affliction. Um, another explanation is that there was... Rashi knows there's basically two reasons, but one is not said. And this one gets a little bit speculative. Leah knows that there'll be a son called Yosef. But she doesn't want to talk about it. Why doesn't she want to talk about it? In other words, she wants to leave it hidden for Rashi to explain to us. It's left in Torah Shabbat, if you like, and not put in Torah Shabbat. Why doesn't Leah want to talk about this son called Yosef openly? Because who's going to be Yosef's mother? Rachel. Now, at the moment, Leah's whole standing is because she's the one producing children. Any allusion to the fact that Rachel is also going to produce a child will take away her standing. So the story about um, how Reuven is going to look after Yosef, even though they were rivals, is left unsaid. Rashi spells it out for us. Um, there's another reason that, and this we get a little bit deeper, this is actually, I think, the Pnei Yoshua, um, who says that by Rachel talking about the fact that, see if I get this right, um, yes, Rachel talks about the fact that Yaakov bought the Bechorah from Esau. And therefore, Yaakov has become the firstborn. Why is that significant? Why was Leah's eyes rakot? Why were Leah's eyes soft? Because according to Rashi, she spent all her time crying that she feared she was going to have to end up marrying Asaph. Asaph being the elder of the two brothers and Rachel, being the younger sister, would marry the younger brother, Yaakov. In this Rashi's explanation of why she calls Reuven, Reuven, she alludes to the fact, or rather explicitly in the Rashi, mentions that Esau sold his Bechorah to Yaakov, which means Yaakov becomes, as it were, the firstborn, which means Yaakov should marry Leah, because if Yaakov is now taking on the status of the older son, he marries the older daughter. 
So Leah becomes the right match for Yaakov. And that's why the Pasuk says, Ya'ehavani ishi, my husband will love me. Because what Rashi is filling in is why she can claim him as her husband. <coughs> so a little bit convoluted, a little bit of a stretch, I think, but an interesting idea that by talking about the fact that Yaakov has bought the Bechorah, she becomes the, the right wife for Yaakov, not for Esau, and Leah, uh, sorry, and Rachel is not the right wife for Yaakov anymore, and that's why, therefore, Ki uh, Ishi is really meant by now, I'm talking about the birthright, my husband is the one who I'm married to, and he's the one who should love me. Um, I think we got to four reasons there, and now I'll give you the fifth which I deliberately didn't give you up till now. This probably isn't actually Rashi. Um, in the original manuscripts, the, the key manuscripts that we look at, this section doesn't appear. It's a later edition. So it's quite possibly not Rashi. And in some Chumashim, it's there in brackets. And to be quite honest, that actually makes the most sense. Because the question that I started with, which I've given various answers to, is really a very hard question. Namely, that if the Pasuk says why he's called Reuven, how can Rashi come and bring a totally different answer? So if we say it's not actually the words of Rashi, that means we don't actually have to answer that question. But if it is the words of Rashi, then we can suggest answers for it as well. There's another detail um, which we have to explain in that um, the way Rashi puts it, if it is Rashi, let's assume it's Rashi, Leah says that number one, Rach, uh, sorry, Reuven is not upset that Yosef takes the Bechorah. And number two, not only that, Reuven saves him from the pit, or tries to save him from the pit. Now, there's a chronological problem here, because the giving of the birthright, or rather the taking of the birthright from Reuven and giving it to Yosef, takes place at the end of Yaakov's life, long way in the future, long after the incident where the brothers throw Yosef in the pit and Reuben tries to save him. So for Leah to say that A, Reuben will give over the birthright to Yosef happily or without complaint, and B, Reuben will save, try to save Yosef, is out of order. To which we can say either not only Leah has Ruach HaKodesh, but Reuben has Ruach HaKodesh. Reuben knows at the time of the pit incident that at some time in the future he's going to lose the Bechorah. Or, slightly more pedestrian explanation, that even though Yaakov had not given the Bechorah to Yosef, Yaakov did love Yosef more than all his brothers. That's what we hear at the very beginning of Pasha's Vayeshev, the story of Yosef. Um, and Reuven already saw that at the time that Yosef was thrown in the pit. So Leah means that Reuven is aware that Yaakov loves Yosef more than anybody else. And even so, she tries to rescue him from the pit. He tries to rescue her from the pit. Okay, let's move on. Posuk Lamed Gimel. Vatahar Od. She conceived again. Vatayled Ben, and she bore a son. Vatomer, and she said, Ki Shama Hashem Ki Snoa Onochi. Hashem has heard, Shama, that I am hated. Vyatain Li Gam Edzot. And she's, he's given me also this one. Vatikra Shamo Shimon. And she called his name Shimon. Now, that is more of the standard um, model for the naming of the children, that she gives the reason first, and then it says she called his name, whatever is based on the reason. So, Hashem has heard, 
The first one was Hashem has seen. The second one Hashem has heard. And Shema leads to Shimon being the name of the second son. Now, I'm just looking at the clock. Um, we have quite a bit to say on the next Pasuk, but we'll make a start. The Tahar Od, and she bore, she conceived again. The Teled Ben, and she bore a son. The Tomer, and she said, Ata Hapa'am Yilaveh Ishi Elai. Now, this time, my husband will accompany me. Ki yaladati lo shaloshavanim, because I've borne him three children. Alkain Karashamo Levi. Therefore, he called, uh, significant, he called his name Levi. So it sounds like the word Levi comes from, she says, Yilaveh ishi, my husband will accompany me. So Rashi's going to talk about um, the words Alkain. Um, where it says, Alkain Karashamo Levi, therefore she called his name Levi, because the word Alkain only appears in relation to three of the sons and not the others. So Rashi has to explain why it's Alkain. And Rashi will also explain why it's Kara, he called and not she called. But that's for next time. But first of all, Rashi explains about the words, Hapam Yilaveh Ishi. This time my husband will accompany me. Now, the obvious question which Rashi's answering is what's, what does it mean this time? What is significant about this time that didn't appear in the two times before? So she has a son called Reuven. Does that not make her husband accompany her? She has a second son called Shimon. Does that not make her husband accompany her? But it's only this time that her husband will accompany her and she spells out because I have borne him three sons. What's special about three? Is it like a hat trick? Is it uh, established a chazaka, some sort of a certainty? So Rashi tells us what it is. So he says, and I, I, I uh, rehearsed this a moment ago, Lefi imahot neviot hayu. Because the matriarchs were prophets. How do we know that? Well, we know that Sarah, um, Hashem told Abraham to listen to Sarah. And Rashi says there, because she's a better Navi than you are. Um, we know that Rivka knew what was in Esau's heart. Esau said in his heart, I want to kill Yaakov. And Rivka knew that. Now, how did she know what Esau said to himself? She must have been a, uh, a Navi'ah. Um, we've already seen that Leah has done prophetic things. Um, so now, now we're seeing that Leah has done prophetic things. We'll leave to Rachel later. Because Rachel also does something showing that she knows about what's going to happen in the future. So it says Rashi, imahot niviot hayu. The matriarchs were prophets. The yodot, and they knew bet shavatim yakov, that there would be 12 tribes, i.e. 12 sons who would be heads of tribes, coming from Yaakov. The arba nashim yisa, and that he would marry four wives. So this is the big Chiddush, this is the big thing that Rashi adds, that the Nuvu'ah was such that they knew that there would be 12 sons, 4 wives. You can do the maths. Amra, she said, Now he has no, literally, opening of the mouth, he has no reason to accuse me. 
because I have taken all my share in the sons. I've had three. So that's the average. So four wives, 12 sons, that means a share, everyone gets three. If you've got three, that means you're a full wife. More than three is even better. Less than three is not quite so good, but three makes you a full wife because it's the average number. Now, what is Rashi saying? The word hapam, as I said a moment ago, is something that hasn't happened before. And she links it to the fact she's got three sons. So what is so special about the three sons that means now yilaveh ishti, now my husband will accompany me. Um, I just want to make one more point um, that uh, the Mizrahi and the Go'arie uh, raise a problem that the Gemara in Megillah says there were seven prophetesses. I'll use the word prophetess because it's distinguishing him from prophets. 48 prophets, seven prophetesses, and it lists who they were. Sarah, Miriam, Devorah, Hannah, Abigail, Hulda, and Esther. And it doesn't mention Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. Yet Rashi has said the Imahot were Nevi'ot. So what do we do? So the Mizrahi, as he sometimes does, says Midrashim Cholkim. There are two different views in the Midrash. Uh, and Midrashim sometimes disagree with each other. The Maharal says that the Gemara is only listing the prophets who profited, uh, sorry, who, who, no, the Maharal says the prophets who were explicitly mentioned in the Tanakh as being prophetic. So Sarah, Hashem actually said to Avram, listen to her voice because she's a prophet. But you don't see anything explicit about Rivka and Rachel and Leah. The Divrei David, which is the Taz, has a different approach. He says the Gemara is only listing those who prophesied about other people and like had an impact uh, beyond themselves. But Rivka and Rachel and Leah only prophesied about themselves. And so that's why they're not counted or they're not listed in that list in the Gemara. Okay, we will stop there. In Hashem, we will meet again next week and we will carry on in the middle of this pasuk from Rashi's comment on al Kane. So I will say thank you very much. And I bid you a Chag uh, a good Hashanah Rabbah and a good Chag Sameach for Shemini Atzeret and for Simchat Torah.